Welcome to Game Over Montreal. You've heard the familiar refrain, we're covering another Montreal Canadiens loss, but you know what, we're not going to bring any negativity into this one because it was a gutsy effort after a pretty Harlem Globetrotters-like first period and, let's face it, overtime from the Colorado Avalanche. For two periods, the Canadiens put up a very strong fight against arguably the best team in the league, and I think that's something to be happy about at this stage of the season and with the way things are going. So let's get into it. I've got a great guest with me today. It's Shane Malloy. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. I honestly, I thought the Montreal Canadiens, other than that barrage they got hammered with, and obviously the two penalties that they took in the first period. I mean, other than that sequence and that time frame, I thought they played a really strong game. And look, young goaltender came in there and he st- he gave them a chance to win and get points. And that's, I mean, I know when you sort of look at it, you go, you know, oh my God, it's like you gave up three goals, but look, they gave him a chance. I mean, look, I, I thought like Hoffman had a brilliant chance. I thought there were some two great chances in the first period that Lackanen could have hammered in. So there was opportunity for them to win this game. Like there was opportunities. Yeah. So I think when, if you go back into the locker room after the game, I think the coaching staff has to look at that as, positive like this is what you can build on i mean we're not there's no illusions to the montreal canadians they're going to end up being one of the bottom three teams in the league by the end of this season because even with people coming back from covid and injuries like to be able to trudge up that hill that's very unlikely so they're really in an interesting position when it comes to this upcoming draft of where they're going to fall and who potentially is there at one two i mean we know who there who there is at one but two and three is i think it's still fluid um, I have my own personal thoughts. It's still early. This is mid you know, it's mid-season, so everything's going to change. But I have some thoughts about their potential, ro- much of roster construction, who they could sort of target in that area as well. Yeah, it's kind of funny, you know, like, I think the last three games, the Canadians have given up something like 51, 53, yes. or maybe 52, and now 46 shots tonight. And I think you could argue pr- relatively easily that they're three of the like best games that they've played in a very long time. They're one Oh and two. And I know like we're, we're not exactly like people, Leafs fans who always jump in the chat. Cause this is, you know, SDPN and it's built on the back of Leafs nation. So there's Leafs fans that come onto the show every night and they get upset whenever I talk about like something positive about this, you know, crap tastic season. But for the Canadians fans, yeah. you've got to latch onto something, right? And, no one is saying, oh, all of a sudden they're fixed and they're going to run the table and uh, make the playoffs at the end of the day. But like you mentioned, something to build on. I think there is stuff through the last three games that you can see building blocks to go forward into next season. I think this is the game that a lot of people wanted to see Caden Primo have specifically to kind of show like, hey, this kid can actually dominate a game. Yeah, he can play in the... Uh, the way that he hung with the, especially the top line in Colorado tonight. Like, I think my hat's off to him and Sam Montembeau as, as well has been spectacular. The last couple starts there. It's good to see that kind of stuff, not just on a looking forward level, but also straight up on an entertainment level. You know, when it's two or three, nothing in the first period, it gets draining to watch those games every single time. I'm like, I'm speaking for myself here, but I know that a lot of people agree with me. Like, it's just not entertaining. So giving the fans something to watch that's like fun is good. And like, honestly, at this stage, you do want them to not go on a huge winning streak because you want to get that first overall pick or like a top five pick. But having close losses like they've been having, I think is almost like the best possible scenario where you can see things you know falling into place a little bit but not enough to actually get on a winning streak which is you know a very defeatist mentality if you're the team like if you're the coaching staff or the players but for fans 
I think and that's management like, and looking yeah, and down management. the future and and that, and that's fine and they don't never say it publicly but behind the scenes certainly they look at that from that point and it's about building blocks to un, like for those players that have come up for the American Hockey League and the younger players that's you need that you can't be in a situation like look at what's happening in Edmonton and that type of mentality you can't have that creep in right because that type of mentality and emotions is contagious. And you, you got to stop that. Like, you got to kill that at the door. So, yes, Montreal Canadiens have been losing, but if you can hang in there in the battle, it just brings something to the locker room. There, it, you don't have that defeatist attitude. You can't have that. So, I think tonight's game was like something that they could hang their hat on and go, hey, man, let's just every game, let's stay in the fight. You know, because yeah. you got some guys on that bench that know what it's like to stay in the fight. So they're not going to allow these players to like, they're going to emphasize that moving forward. Yeah. And I've been, I think deservedly very harsh with like Ben Sherratt and David Savard that pairing together has been terrible, but I thought they were really strong tonight. Uh, spent a lot of time against the avalanche top pair. They didn't, you know, like they didn't dominate or anything like that. They just kind of like held it relatively even compared to the which, rest of which the team. is really what they're supposed to do exactly in that respect and one of and the things Chirot, is, like he thought it was the playoffs out there uh he got caught once on getting a penalty which and then he was like confused about it, it was a super obvious penalty but he nailed mckinnon twice and he nailed rantanen twice in that game and to me that's like hey People who want to trade for me, this is what I can do when uh, they stop calling penalties, which is very interesting because he's kind of, I don't know, he hasn't been playing soft. I don't want to say that, but he hasn't been running after and trying to target guys lately. I think, you know, just at a certain point in the season like this, you just can't do that physically you, you, every game. He's got to pick his spots and look, he, 100%. he is, and he's a second pairing D. You know, David Savard's a second pairing D. Like they're both probably number fours, to be honest, on a power, on a playoff team. So when you put them in different with different usage and deployment against a top line, that's not who, where they should be. Yes, you yeah. can do that over time, but they can't be the number one defense grouping against the McKinnon line all game long because sooner or later there's going to be a breakdown. So and that's the situation they have with their the defense core. And this is where I think you look at the Montreal Canadiens moving forward is depending on what happens with the draft, if they get first overall and they get Shane Wright, okay, it sort of changes the roster construction up top. But look at defense. How do you want to, how do you want to, what's the philosophy of your roster construction on defense moving forward? Everybody chases after the number ones and number twos. Look what Chicago did in trading for Seth Jones and the assets they paid and then the contract they paid for it. You, you can't really do that. Like no. unless you have a, a plethora of really strong prospects and you can really sort of like almost bleed it out to do that in, in other ways, you can't do that. So how do you look at your roster on defense moving forward? Petrie is older. He's going to have to be replaced at some point. What are you going to do? Like there may be a different philosophy. I mean, I can tell you a quick story. I was sitting down having um, lunch at a U 18s in Slovakia with Ken Holland when he was still when he's still in Detroit and we were talking about different roster constructions prior to Vegas coming in. And I said, can you win? Can you go to the Stanley cup final with a defense with four number threes and two number fours? Can you do that? Right. With an elite, with a, with a really good goaltender. And he didn't think you could because he was concerned about having that number one D man and playing the 28 minutes. But my philosophy was you could roll out, three three defense lines and play 20 minutes each and the best best guys on power play play power play best on penalty kill play penalty kill but you don't have these issues in terms of raw of matchups throughout a game even into the playoffs so it's something perhaps the Montreal Canadiens can consider moving forward is maybe you don't have to chase for that number one and maybe like we look in our prospect pool we don't really have that Caden Gooley I wouldn't consider that no so right so what do we do? Well, it's easier in acquisition, whether it's in a trade or free agency to get threes and fours, right? So if you have two fours, go after four number three, you know, four number threes. And what are the, what's the cost on the cap? You're going to be in that 5 million range. Well, that's okay. That's, that's fine. You can manage four of those guys easily. It's when you have those first and number one and number two is at 8 million 
hit eight and a half million, nine million, then what do you do at the bottom? All right, now I have to have a defenseman who's like like a legitimate number six out there at a million and a half. And then I got to protect them. And the same with maybe your number five. And I just don't like, I just don't like that roster. Like, look, if you happen to get a number one defenseman in the draft, lucky you. But, you know, the likelihood of, of acquiring it is so rare that you have to, I think this new management has to consider what they're going to do moving forward in that respect. Well, I think you could look at like, I think it was uh, the 2017 Penguins that won the cup. Who was their number one D? You know, right. were they, they were nowhere I mean, close I mean, to having a number one because Latang was out the whole playoffs. Out, right. And, and, you know, you look at Carolina's D when they had won the Stanley Cup against Edmonton. So there are defense cores like that that you can look at and go, okay, like, so we can have these four number three defensemen. And yeah, they're not, they're not elite, but they're so good in a variety of different areas. It provides you value when you're rolling those, those defense, those uh, pairings out. So it's something I'm just curious. It'd be a conversation I'll probably end up having with, you know, when I get a chance to talk to Jeff um, and then, you know, as well as with Marty LaPointe, who we have on our, on hockey prospect, hockey prospect radio on our show on a regular basis to talk about those kind of things. Cause he's been in player development. He's been player personnel. He's like had a lot of hats with this organization. So uh, I'm curious to see what they're going to do and what their strategies and what their thoughts are moving forward. Cause you can always glean something from those conversations. Yeah. Even if you're not asking like they're not questions. answering exactly what you want, but they'll, they'll let something. They give you nuggets. They always yes. do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Talking about this game a little bit more before we move on to more of the uh, Canadians, like a wide uh, look at uh, what they're going to do going forward. We talked about uh, like the last three games being, you know, a bit more of what you want to see in this kind of year. And like the intensity is ratcheted up. And I brought it up on the last show as well that I don't think it's a coincidence that this has happened as Tyler Toffoli came back into the lineup. And specifically, the substitution of Toffoli onto the Suzuki line, which has allowed them to move Hoffman off that line. And I do think Hoffman has been better now that he's been away from higher competition. And he does seem like he's skating a little bit harder because he wasn't skating very hard before. And maybe that's a reaction to actually getting demoted after not getting demoted at all, despite not playing hard. Part of it is also having to think more. Yeah. When you're yeah. having to play against like top lines and top defense pair, like there's there's more thinking and let and not instant reaction to the play, right? And that's when you ha- you can slot people where they need to be, and that's what unfortunately what injuries cause chaos and COVID cause chaos to that moving forward. So that's where you see the disruptions and the lopsided losses for Montreal is because guys are nowhere near where they need to be 100%. in terms of their effectiveness. So that that that's a huge factor. Like I talk about usage and deployment on our show all the time and how critical that is to the success of a team of slotting people in the right place. And like, sometimes as fans, you sort of forget the difference between how great a first pairing decor is against us versus a second and how much better they are insulating and taking away time and space. And you maybe not notice it, but like you're just not getting anything. And Hoffman has no business going against, a first pairing on a regular basis. Sure. He's going to get out there on occasion. That's going to happen, but you don't want him out there more than a couple shifts a game. Yeah. And like Suzuki's kind of used in a like power on power role too, right? Like Plakanich was back when he was the number one center for the Canadians. So putting Hoffman in that situation where not only is he facing top defenses because they're trying to defend the top line, he's facing top offenses and now has to think about the consequences of his plays with the puck all the time. And, it's it's just not a situation that works. But Toffoli, meanwhile, is a very, very smart player. And him and Suzuki were absolutely on fire tonight. I thought they played a fantastic game. Uh, I haven't checked what the overall possession numbers were because I know that like team-wide, it's not going to be very good. But I thought that they were putting some magic together every time they were on the ice, at uh, in the offensive zone especially. And they even managed to score a power play goal on what looked like an absolutely terrible power play, but they just salvaged it at the very end there. And I, I just think those two together, when Toffoli said after the last game, 
that he wants to stay in Montreal and be part of like the the solution going forward. And I know Josh Anderson said the same thing, but his contract is not really tradable. So that kind of goes without saying. <laughs> no offense, Josh. But uh, Suzuki's contract is unbelievably tradable. And I think you'd have a lineup of like 22 teams trying to get him if you put him on the market. But I, I'm wondering now, the more I see him and Suzuki, how well they play together, how much of an impact Toffoli has on this group. Like every team that sells away everything, the rebuild lasts forever, right? You know, we, we've seen it in Columbus when they were first coming in. We've seen it in Buffalo. Like we see it just, it in Arizona now. Yeah, yeah. You, you just you have to have somebody to shepherd in the next generation. And I feel like the two guys that are like 100% on my list right now, and like my idea could change. Like if I'm Kent Hughes and somebody comes up and they're like, I'm going to offer you a first round pick in 2022 and 2023 for Tyler Foley. I'm like, okay, bye, bye Tyler. Love you but you're gone, but yeah. it's unlikely to get that return, right? So I'm thinking Tyler Toffoli and Arturi Lekkanen are two guys that bring it every single night. They're intelligent hockey players that can bring valuable insight into the young kids that make up the core of this team as it goes forward. I don't know if I'm that interested in trading either of them. Well, the other the factor is, and then you add Josh Anderson into that, what they do is insulate the younger players right on the ice. It's really important to have insulation there. So like when you start bringing up guys and we'll go through the prospects later, but even if you look, you look at Caulfield, you know, and Paling, just as two examples is they need that level of insulation and Toffoli's one, like he's won cups. He mm -hmm. knows what it takes, right? So that type of mental preparation, emotional preparation, but also be able to handle stress. And I really, that's what I think poise really is. There is the intellectual aspect of it, of being able to recognize the situation, but emotionally you have to compartmentalize that. And, and the guys who can't do one or the other always end up like not rising in a place or at least staying at their level. So I think Toffoli's great at that. And what he does with Suzuki is he's great at finding soft ice. Yes. But having but having fantastic puck support. It's one of the things he learned when he was with Sutter. And you look at the Calgary Flames when they're playing well, their puck support is fantastic all over the ice. And it's like puck support so that when Suzuki needs the dish so he can go find space, Toffoli's always presents a stick and he's at the right body position. I'm like kind of doing that in my chair, but that's that's what it really, when you watch Toffoli play, that's the essence of his game in the neutral and offensive zone is really so much of that. And that makes it so much easier to play with a guy like that. Like when I played, I, I didn't do that for you, but I was also <laughs> a defenseman and I was slow when my best move was off the glass. So that's a whole nother conversation. I mean, I was a goalie, so I've, I've got none of that. You know, my instincts are not there. And after blowing out my ankles, I can't really skate that well anymore anyway. So I'm not moving very quick, but I, was, I remember I was talking to someone recently and they were saying like Kent Hughes mentioned like speed as like a big factor in uh in where what they wanted to build for the new identity of the Montreal Canadiens like ideally in his mind and they're saying they didn't think that Toffoli fit in there and I was like speed means more what speed is yeah speed means more than just skating right and Toffoli is not a swift skater but yet if you look at his like especially last season with the way the Canadians played a lot of his offense came off the rush how do you think a guy is able to create offense off the rush when he's not yeah like fast it's intelligence yeah. right it's yeah. it's that uh, it's when people talk it's about speed uh, through the speed through the puck speed through and the puck and speed through opponents right like yeah. do you remember there was like a thing that went viral a couple of years ago and they were talking about how like Connor mcdavid is not the fastest skater in the nhl but when they did that test where you had to like react to like different lights going off and change a lane yeah he was like blowing the doors off of everybody Toffoli is not McDavid, but I think he has that same reaction, like not the same level, but he has that same strength in that his reaction right. to open spaces is very strong. So he but finds ways awareness to... allows him to do yes, that. Yes. Yes. And one of the other factors is look, we'll use an analogy for football. Cause I played, I played DB and slot and you look at cop as, as a wide receiver with the LA Rams. He is not the fastest player but he's one of the best receivers because he understands how to use his speed relative to his line mates and relative to the defenders around him. So you don't have to be blazing off. Hey, I don't know if you're like some of your like listeners and, and, and you may remember Rico Fata drafted yes. in the first round by the Calgary flames, man, blazing speed. 
and he would skate himself right into a dead end or right into a bad spot. And it looked, actually, his speed became a detriment to his game and to his line mates. So it's not always about the best speed. It was like, go even go back to a quote. It was funny when Bob Ganey was the GM in Dallas and he made, he made the trade to get Guy Carboneau. And one of his pro scouts said to him, but he, he can't skate anymore. He's not fast. He goes, he knows where to stand. So he knows where to be, right? So he makes up for that because he always knows where to be and where his body position is. The Foley does that too. You can like, look at Mark Stone. I don't care that Mark Stone's an average skater against his peer group in the NHL. He always knows where to be. He's like, and he understands how to use his speed. How to use your speed is more effective. And we have this on an ongoing um section in our show with Pat Malloy, same last name, but we're not related, but he's a Malloy. So he better, hopefully he's smart. Um, you know, <laughs> and, and he talks about that in terms of his player development is understanding about what speed really is. It's not just the guy who burns it when he's chasing after a puck. That's not always what it really means in the end of the day. Yeah, that reminds me a little bit of like Matthew Lombardi, who everyone expected to become like this number one center because he was such a ridiculously fast skater. Yes. And he had some good seasons, but he never quite lived up to like the high end thought that everyone thought, because it's like not just not using your speed efficiently, but also your speed doesn't really matter that much if you can't also handle the puck at that speed. Like that's another thing that separates McDavid. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like the the way that McDavid can process information and keep the puck on his stick while at top speed. And also like his speed intervals, right? Like where he's able to change speed. That was a big thing with uh, probably aging myself a little bit here now. Uh, Like Joe Sackick, Joe Sackick's big thing was like, yeah, he was pretty quick, but also he would like slow down, then speed up and slow down. In one sequence. Yeah. Yeah. He was, it was a king of the three quarter speed. It drove defenseman bananas because you don't know how to, how to gap up that. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Or you think you're you're good. And then all of a sudden you're not. And he's the wrist shots in the net already. Yeah. Cause he, what he'll do is he'll angle off on you and then you go to adjust. And then all of a sudden you've left these lanes open. Oh no, no. I could, I remember watching them all through the nineties going, uh Oh, and the only guy who could, who effectively could handle them was Lidstrom. Yeah, because you could handle the gaps properly, you know, and that's what made Joe. And it's a great that's a great point you brought up. It's and we talk about it on our show is that notorious three quarter speed that just drives defenders nuts. Yeah, it 100 percent. It's it's like super fun. And I find looking back at old highlights of uh, I mean, I, I like watching old highlights of Sackick and Forsberg. They were like my two favorites after the Patrick Watt trade when I started watching Colorado a lot. But uh yeah, it's just incredible. I find you can glean a lot of really cool insights by watching old stuff. It's because the game today is super fast. So if you're not trained necessarily at what to look for, like I suggest watch some games from the 90s. That's the one advantage of the clutch and grab era. Yes. Is things happen a little pick, bit slower because yeah. you can pick things up in terms of particularly positioning and puck support and how important that was and angles. Whereas today, like if you're not trained as a scout and I was really fortunate because I had really great mentors to help me learn that craft. It's exceptionally hard. It's the hardest job in hockey, particularly at the amateur level. Um, I even find myself when I watch a game is I can't turn that off. Like the only time I could ever turn that off is, and I was laughing with Brad on our show about it is that if we go to a game with our buddies and we drink alcohol, Yes. Right. It's basically it's the only way to turn like scout off is because otherwise I'm assessing what's going on constantly. I, I can't. It's, it's, it's just once you have it, you have it, whether you do it well or not. It's just that's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I like that caveat. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, I think we're, we're pretty settled on this game. I think that uh, everyone, everyone should be in agreement that this is a pretty fun game to watch. Uh I thought it was a great effort from the Montreal Canadiens, especially Caden Primo. I really like Suzuki, Toffoli, Lekkanen. I Again, props to Sherrod and Savard for holding yep. the fort. But uh, let's talk about Kent Hughes and what he could do here. Because I know this is something that you were excited to chat about, Shane, was what is Kent Hughes' strategy going to be? And I asked uh, last show, I didn't get a chance to read them all out, but I asked just like a question of the day thing, like, 
what do you want Kent Hughes' first move to be as general manager? And almost everyone answered one of two things. Trade Ben Sherratt for a good return before he gets injured <laughs> at the deadline. Or revamp development for prospects. Like, build a development team, build a skills coaching system like Toronto has. What do you think Kent Hughes' biggest moves going forward this season are going to be? Honestly, nothing. It has nothing to do with the roster. Nothing to do with the roster. I think his biggest and most important decisions will have to be in his hockey operations staff. So he has a lot to work to do, and it, and it's a difficult situation because he's it's it is January, and unfortunately, you can't. Majority of the teams don't allow lateral moves, so you can't move an assistant GM to another assistant GM position. So there's some big open holes. There's obviously an assistant GM position that is required in Laval. There's another assistant GM position that is required to manage both the pro and amateur staff, which is critical. Um, I know you have Marty LaPointe there who has done a lot of different things in terms of play, director player personnel and, and, and player development. So he has some versatility inside of that hockey ops, which is really important. I've had him on my show many times. He's very thoughtful, um, very articulate, um, exceptionally hard worker, um, takes pride in his work, which I think is really important from that standpoint, you have to shore up your player development department. You have two people, which is crazy. I think you need to have two people in the, in the NHL, two in the American league, and then two that actually just go out just for prospects alone. So you're going to need four more people in your player development department. There's that. And somebody to head up that department in terms of looking at it from a business perspective, because it's human dynamics and it's human performance. So you have to specifically have a plan where you're not. And I think he brought it up in his press conference about not having siloed departments where there is constant communication between the coaching staffs from the American League, uh, your player development department, your 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 both your assistant general managers through to your. Now, I know the media tends to use the term analytics staff. I think it's antiquated and it needs to stop. Because it's not reflective of what it really is. What the Montreal Canadiens are, are a Fortune 500 company. So if you look at it, like with Jeff um, and with Kent, and if you're going to build this out properly, it's a, it's a research and development department. And what you require, and I know lots of people talk about diversity. I think what they really need is cognitive diversity, which is different. So like you can have, for instance, like our, our mutual friend, Rachel Dory was hired by Vancouver. Now, although we are separated by about 20, 20 plus years in age, and she's a woman and I'm a guy, our thought processes are actually really similar. So we don't have in terms of, although we could work great to, on a staff together, our cognitive diversity is pretty similar. So what you want to be able to have in your, in your staff is not just a bunch of analytics people. Look, like unless you like some people don't understand what analytics really is in terms of what it's a singular discipline that's myopic so yes it is valuable but if you look at it from an academic standpoint a research standpoint it's only one sliver you're gonna need somebody who understands statistics which is another discipline that's sometimes myopic then you're going to want to have somebody who understands entrepreneurial interdisciplinary business so that you can start to actually integrate all these different disciplines. You're going to want somebody who understands player development and performance management. That's going to be a critical component. You're probably going to even need to have somebody else who ha understands like the coaching aspect of it as well. Have like a team of four or five people and spend money on it. Like don't try to like hire somebody who is, just out of like their undergrad is 22 years old or 23 and doesn't have a lot of experience. Like you have Jeff Molson has the money. Like I would be hiring somebody with a master's degree minimum plus you need to have experience, practical experience. I'd actually be searching for people with PhDs who are people who are taking PhDs to be in that department because you have to do research at that graduate level. And doing research, like I started doing research as an undergrad, and then the difference between the research I do now in graduate school, it's like night and day. Because having to go in front of your committee and having them like pound you around like a roadside pinata is entirely different because the level of scrutiny you have to have for that is really critical. So if I look at it from an overview, 
can't and are going to have to hire two assistant GMs, probably three or four people for player development. They're going to have to hire an entire R&D department on top of that, and then start thinking about what, what has happened with their scouting and their success rate. Because if you look in the salary cap era, and although I really like Trevor Timmons and the guys that were there, in the salary cap era from 06 to like 15, that 10 years, they were the worst drafting development team in the entire league in terms of efficiencies yeah. of getting <laughs> players to play 200 plus games in the NHL. Like, cause the first thing you need to do, and it was actually funny cause I do see it out in the Twitter fear that Twitter sphere that people used 200 plus games and five games before the analysis. That was actually something that I had developed back in like 2007, 2008 when I was running for TSN and Sportsnet, And it was based on certain aspects. So the 200 plus games is actually based on behavioral economic theory. And then the five years is based on um, cognitive. So it's actually based on, on science, not on just some random numbers that I threw together. It's actually ended up having to do research on it. Why that matter? There was a certain threshold for value. But if you look at the Montreal Canadiens, like I don't know if it was an evaluation issue. I don't know if it was a process issue. I don't know if it was an issue in their rankings because I've sat in the room at NHL when they're putting together their rankings for the draft and it's chaos. Yeah. Because sometimes what is on the scouting report does not correlate to what's on the ranking. They're like, because there's, there's a misinformation flow between what your attributes say and what you say in the report and then what your value process is for your rankings. And it's basically a free for all of guys yelling and screaming at each other. Cause I want this guy above this guy. But yeah, we saw that with like, the, no, the Philadelphia no flyers draft video from when they took uh, Sam Moran, where exactly. it was, like, the draft day. And they like moved him up from like way low in the first round up into like their top five choices or something like that on draft day for Which no reason. Crazy. For no reason. And this happens more than you realize in the conversations I've had with teams where this kind of stuff happens. Um, and I've, I've sat down and talked with you know directors of amateur scouting who try to help their staff recognize the issues when we are taking scouting reports and putting them into a list and then compressing lists. It's extremely difficult. Like I built a system to help myself do that because I just kept making mistakes over and over again. And I'm like, what am I, what's going on here? And so I had to prioritize based on a bunch of different attributes and playing styles and all these other factors of value. So I started taking economic values and adding them in like scarcity, like understanding what's value. Like I hear crazy. It was, it was a comment as much as I love Gordy Clark. He's a great guy. He ran the draft for New Jersey for the Rangers. And it was a year they took McElrath. And at, like, I can't, I was on the floor cause we're doing the show live um, right beside the stage. And then the, the first round's over. And I'm like, Gordy, like you had, you know, you like, you had Fowler sitting there. Like, why didn't you take Fowler? Oh, but we had too many guys like that. I'm like, you can never have enough offensive defensemen. I don't care. Like yeah. it's scarcity. There's like, I, I looked the other day. I think there was, tw- I think I categorized 25 or 26 offensive defensemen in the NHL. That's it. So that's scarcity. So automatically they have value. It's no different than power forwards have scarcity in the NHL. So that's why Matthew Tuchuk in a redraft is probably number two because of that. Right. So like understand, like when you're putting these rankings together, it's a whole different, like Brad and I get into this on the show about that um, because it's our, I think it's probably one of our funnest things to talk about. So when you're looking at from a Montreal Canadiens perspective is, I think they have to completely come in. And although, you know, I think I'm sure Marty LaPointe's going to do a very good job of keeping things on the rails, but really strongly evaluate like what you look for in attributes on a player, like how you weight and measure those attributes, and then like what playing styles are more valuable. And then how do you rank, how do you put the rankings together? Because they can't afford to make any misses anymore. And then, what I didn't really understand, I've never got the answer fully. And there was part of me that didn't really want to ask either was you brought in a couple guys like Rick Dudley and Shane Churla who have excellent track records, especially Rick Dudley, maybe one of the best scouts I've ever met. 
Like the guy was like, you think he's old school and he's not, he's like, he's about as update up to date in that you could possibly imagine. And they started turning some things around. They started collecting some players and I looked at their drafts. I'm like, Hey, you know, they got some guys in the second and third rounds. There's some potential there. And then both of them are gone. Like what, like the area that you have the most problem with, you brought in two guys that can help you. And then they go, they're off in Florida. Like, what are you doing? I like, I didn't understand that. Like, what the hell? Like, that's the area where your, your whole organization has plummeted. Now, part of the issue I've always seen is, and it happened in New Jersey too, because they had horrendously awful draft efficiency as well, is they had an elite goaltender. Yes. Just covers like, up just like so my, much And problems. it covers up all their warts, right? So they could get away with, like, I'm looking at Montreal. I'll pull up their numbers now in comparative uh, in those 10 years, 06 to 15. Uh, a commenter, before you keep going, commenter says, I feel like I'm in school. I hope that means in a good way that you're learning something that you're passionate about. Oh, yeah. No, no. This is because, like, this is how, like, teams get mad at, at or fans get mad at teams for drafting crappy. Well, this is it. In 10 years, you had 66 picks. You got 11 players. 11. Like, if they didn't have that year in 2007, where they dinged, like, they had a Grand Slam home run of four players. Oh my God! Yeah, like, where I mean, would they and, be? And also, where like, would they be? if they had kept Ryan McDonough from that 2007 draft, yes. like Trevor Timmons could have retired after that draft and gone down as a legend. You know, you've yeah. based you drafted two players who, for a time, were number one defensemen, and you drafted a guy who was like the third or fourth best goal scorer in the league for like and a ten year period. Still had Weber as a number six, just yeah. as a throw in. Like that was a. F- Phenomenal draft, and since then it's just it's not been great. Let's see, uh, zero zero Brennan Gallagher, uh, Nathan Bullio, Alex Galchenyuk, Jacob Delarose, Alturi Lekkinen, and Sven. You know, and that's he's barely marginal. No, he's not You're even in the league. Andrew Ghetto, yeah, yeah. I thought he it. was good. I, I think he should have stayed in the league for longer, but uh, yeah, and so that's it. You had four years out of 10 where you got donuts. Yep. Donuts. You had to pull two a year or forget it. You're not contending. And like making bank on first round picks is very important. And the Canadians have flat out not. Yeah. You got to hit in the first three rounds. And here, I'll tell you a crazy stat. So from 2011 to 2015, the Pittsburgh Penguins, who were drafting low, had 11 picks in the first three rounds. Guess how many picks are going to go on? Those players out of the 11 are going to go on to play 200 games. I don't know. All 11. All 11. 11. The league average is 46%. So it lets you like, just because you're picking high doesn't mean you can't get players to play. But it also says something about their player development Mm -hmm. and what they had in Wilkes-Barre. And I think one of the best things Montreal ever did was move their farm team to Laval. Yes. That's critically important. Right. One, it's also for acquisition of getting good American League players or and their prospects because they look at it and say, oh, I can just get an apartment and I and a condo and I'd never have to leave the city. Mm-hmm. I'm always going to be here. That matters in, in terms of like, you know, acquiring players and retention. That's critical. So uh, it's uh, man, I don't I'm sorry, Habs fans, but it's going to be uphill trudging and whether they're going to be successful. I'm looking at their list other prospects from 2017 to 2021, they're going to have to spend a lot of money on player development. I mean, a lot of money on personnel to ensure that they hit, they hit because I'm looking at 17 players of those five years and they got to get at least 10. They got to get at least 10 to play 200 plus games minimum. And that's going to be critical because uh, we had a comment on the stream chat saying, uh, do you think this team will be competitive in the window that having Suzuki and Caulfield provide? I feel like that's a pretty wide window because those players well, are very young. Be, but in seven or- years. Yeah, exactly. Like, But in order to compete relatively quickly, like if they want this to be a fast rebuild, it can't just be about revamping their draft process from now on. Because, yeah, it's going to they, be about their development now. Uh, yes, they have to take now. what they already have and build something out of those players. They've got to maximize all or a lot of those players as much as they can to get some wiggle room, right? Because, yes. 
you you can't turn this around. Even if they were to get Edmonton Oilers lucky and draft Shane Wright and Connor Bedard this year and next year, that's not enough. It's it would be a great start, a great start. But with how much they're going to have to sell off to get to that point, and like to be this bad next year, I think they're going to have to the teardown is going to have to be pretty extreme because I think especially if Carey Price is part of the organization next year, you know, if Caden Primo becomes a legitimate even number like a one a goal or one B goal. One B. Yeah. You know, yeah. like the injury luck won't be as bad. They're please, please let there not be no more COVID, COVID situation next year. <laughs> not just for them, for the whole damn world, but all those factors that have really gone against them this year will probably not go against them as severely next year. So to get to that level, they're going to have to sell off a lot. And in order to recover it, quickly, it would have to be like Arizona. And that's just, I don't know. If yeah. You it's do not, it's not going to happen that way. I, no. I think like they can get to a point where they think, think they could probably pick like top five next year, but they're going to need some lottery luck and they're probably going to have to settle for not Bedard, but like that draft is very top. Like the top is very potentially. Yeah. High, yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah. I mean, you look at their prospect list, like, Paling has to play. Josh Brook has to play for them. Yeah, I think would be Caulfield nice. has to be a 30 goal scorer. Yes. I mean, I mean, Eikonen would be great if you could get him in. Mulanen um, would be great if you could get him in. And, and Caulfield has to play. Gooley's got to play. Luke Tuck's got to play. Misak's got to play. I don't know what you're like. I don't even want to discuss Logan Mayu in that situation. But <laughs> yeah, that's a whole nother thing. Riley Kidney's going to have to play. Like you're like Matthias Norlander is going to have to play. Now they don't have to play in top lines. Of course, Caulfield certainly should, but if you can get like round out your third and fourth lines with these prospects and you can round out your sort of fourth, fifth and sixth defensemen with these prospects, what it does is it allows you not to have to go into free agency and pay two to three times more in terms of salary cap. And then allows you to not have to spend assets to go get those players. Because that's like, that's, that's what kills teams. Look at the Vancouver Canucks as a perfect example of when their prospects don't come in and you have to supplement them with making re- poor decisions like paying Jay Beagle 3 million a year. Yes. Right. You, you have to avoid that. So even if a, a fan says, Oh, but he's only, you know, an F 10. Yeah. But it's better paying that guy, that young kid, a million dollars than paying some vet two and a half or two. Right. All those five hundred thousand dollars, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, million dollars that adds up. You know, I use Vancouver as an example because they're one of the they were one of the worst asset management teams in terms of their cap in the salary cap era. So you sort of want to avoid that. And you do that by bringing in your prospects. I know fans sometimes get mad and we get the comments from our show is like, oh, but he's only a third liner. He's a third liner in the NHL. Right. That you didn't have to pay more to get. Yeah. So that's where the money spent in player development saves you on the acquisition cost moving forward. And then that allows you to trade up if you need to, if there's a player available, right. Or, you know, there are situations that come where, you know, you look at the Rangers or you look at the LA Kings coming. Kings are a perfect example. And of like, now what they can do is start loading up and trading away some prospects and picks to get some better players. And speaking of the Kings, I know they're trying to fill some, you know, spots with their assistant GMs. That's hard to do. So maybe Daniel Briere comes in as his assistant is assistant GM for Laval. I think that'd be a really great spot for him because of his time in the ECHL and managing that. He understands what needs to be done. I think that's a that potentially is a really nice fit. But then you're looking at an assistant GM for to run your pro and amateur, and you're not going to get these sideways moves. They just don't like doing that it happens occasionally occasionally when another gm comes and takes his former assistant gm it happened in philly when you know when chuck left minnesota he brought brent flair with him so that that happened in that respect but if i look at a name that you want to improve your drafting and you want to improve your pro scouting then i would look at a name like mark Unetti out of the los angeles kings who is currently just the director of scouting. So it's a bump up, but he's run both departments and the LA Kings in the salary cap era have had one of the, have the top five best drafting development record in the, in the league. And they've won two cups and they've rebuilt. He rebuilt a whole system again, 
Now, yeah. prior to that, he had help with Mike Fuda because they were kind of co, but now he's done it on his own with his, his own staff. And in conversations I've had with Mike on my show, I think he's really highly intelligent. And one of the interesting comments I got about him from a former colleague who's now a coach in, in the NCAA, he, I, he said, I said, oh, wh- how'd you like working with Mark Kennedy? He goes, great. And he goes, he goes, he's a pretty smart guy. And he goes, no, I don't think you understand. He's, he goes, no, he's the Will Hunting of the NHL. That was the description. Like that genius love potential level of just really understanding his craft. And his dad was a longtime scout as well. So, you know, if you're looking at it from Kent Hughes' perspective, I don't know if LA would let him go, but that's a guy I target because then you could bump him up to assistant GM and yeah. then give him that role. And then he could oversee those departments and then work in tandem, obviously, with Daniel Briere. And they really sort of take over the acquisition and the development of what's going on because he has Mark Inetti has a background with player development and you know, he understands analytics really well. Robert Volman works with him in LA. Um, so in the conversations I've had with Mark, he, you know, he's progressive is more progressive than you could possibly imagine from that respect. So I think Ken Hughes has some really interesting opportunities to hire some really strong personnel to sort of revamp what the Montreal is doing. And Hey, I'd knock on Mr. Nolson's uh, Molson's door and say, Hey, we need some beer money. We got to spend some money here. We're going to spend some money to bring in people. So, and, and more people like this stat, these staffs have to be way larger than they were before. Way larger. It's too much work for one or two people. You can't have two people in your player development department. I mean, I'm not even talking about the goalies. I think the yeah. goalie department should be four people deep. Like, honestly, not including the development of just the defense and the forwards. That should be six deep. And then you should probably have like at least one prospect, one development for prospects, one in the American League and one in the NHL. Like you're going to have to at least need three guys. And then you definitely going to have somebody, you have to have somebody in Europe. So you got to add another one. That's another four. That's four. So, you know, these are the kind of interesting conversations like I like having about Montreal because it's a clean slate. Exactly, and how often, yeah. and how often in, in a franchise's history where you get to have a clean slate where like, not only do you have like you have opportunity and there's people like like we'll have knife fights to work for the Montreal Canadiens. It's the Montreal Canadiens. Like they are the New York Yankees of the NHL. If you want to work for a team, you want to work for the Montreal Canadiens. I don't care who you are. Like look at Jeff Gordon's face. He's like in his press conference. No, uh, it's great then from Boston, but yeah. it's the Montreal Canadiens, right? Like I remember being a, going to the Montreal Forum on a road trip. And it was just like, it's hallowed ground. Like, I think it's basically, if you want to work for the Habs, it's like, let's get into the Mad Max Thunderdome. Two men enter, one man leave, or woman, doesn't matter. <laughs> get in there and whoever survives, you're on, you're like, you're hired. Because yeah. that's how coveted the, this to work for this organization is. 100%. We had a comment in the stream chat saying, uh, five years ago, the Habs were the worst team in the league. Historically bad, but there was no teardown re- rebuild in Denver. Just patience. I'm gonna. He was saying you Canadians need patience. I'm gonna push back on that quite a bit because that yeah, the drafting was horrible. They were actually the second worst. Yes. However, at that point in time, the Avalanche already had Nathan McKinnon, Miko Rantanen, and Gabe Landeskog. Uh, I believe that was after they'd already traded Ryan O'Reilly, but like they traded yes. Ryan O'Reilly like that year i believe i believe that's correct yeah and they still had matt deshane who they traded for the return on matt deshane was absolutely phenomenal like joe sakic is a magician for that but that team there's like four players left so to say that there was no teardown like there definitely was no big tank but they did rebuild on the fly like they changed things a lot yeah and they got things i agree and as much as uh like it was a high draft choice. They also got incredibly lucky with Kale McCarr because guys who were drafted out of like major junior very rarely turn into what he turned into. Like there was signs, but even the best sign of what Kale McCarr could have become has been blitzed completely by what he is now. Well, I watched him. I went and went into and watched him in Alberta junior a and I flew into Calgary and then, 
went up and watched him play a, a bunch of times. And it was obvious that he was going to be an offensive defenseman. Was he going to be 70, 80 points a year defenseman? I never yeah. projected that, but I thought, well, I remember in the drafts and talking to Russ and we're, uh, we do our draft show. We end up doing like four hours of draft coverage, six hours of draft pre-draft coverage. And I said, I think he's going to probably be a two, three and get you 50, maybe 60 points a year. Like, like I didn't like, I thought, Oh, okay. This, this kid's special. You're going to take him in the top 10. Like this is going to be a bonafide, really good player, but then there's stratosphere superstar. But I, I give Colorado credit. One of the, the things they did, like obviously with Joe Sackick and, and um, you know, Craig Billington is there as well during that time is they won almost all their trades. Yep. And then their free agents, they did really well there too. And winning all your trades is rare. So it was like, I actually went back and started researching all their trades. I'm like, wait a minute, how many did they win versus how many did they lose? And it was like way in the favor of wins. So that doesn't happen as often in the NHL. That's a, like they had a great run of winning trades. Um, and but it wasn't, also, they weren't trades for like depth players either. I mean, no, they I, were trades for like those middle six, like, you know, top four D. Yeah. Like I find it's easier to win the, like the depth player trades where like you, you can kind of edge it one way or the other. Pieces, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you like put them in a good situation. It looks like a win. I feel like Bergevin was very good at doing that. And he, I mean, he, to be fair, he won some really big trades too. the Jeff Petrie trade, the Phil Deneau trade. Those were huge. hundred percent. But at not at the level of like the Devon Taves trade. Although I'd say like Petrie's probably the same, but Devon Taves, that trade is ridiculous no, and I mean, then well, based trade. On what they already had yeah 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 no peach was a that was a great trade and no i give like i give bergie credit like in terms of trading it was the one area as a general manager he was really strong in um and the players like legitimately liked him what crushed those crushed them is their drafting their drafting development it was just completely it was it's the worst in the league in the salary cap era zero like they were number third the worst. Yep. Colorado was 29. Vancouver was 28. <laughs> New Jersey was 26. You see a theme here? Yeah, uh, you may not even like realize it, but Chicago like was 25. I like, mean, their I drafting's think... been bad. It's yeah. been bad. And uh, like at least Chicago has the excuse of they were winning cups, right? <laughs> they were winning well, one, they were winning cups and they had like really they had drafted really well to a certain point, and then they lived on it, and then it just went right over the cliff. Mm-hmm. And that's what really crushed them. They missed. There was a lot of misses, a lot of like, and it's not the first round misses. It's that second and thirds. You got to hit on those. And occasionally you got to hit in the fourth to seventh. Like it's, I, I pulled up a crazy stat, like in the salary cap era, sort of 06 to 15. And the reason why I say that is because every, everything changed after the salary cap came in. So if you look at those 10 years on average, four to seven round, you only, there's only 15 players that'll play more than 200 games. 15 out of those four rounds on average. So look at the last year's draft, four to seven rounds, pick your 15 players who you think are going to play. And that's all you're going to get. So if you're a team who can ding one of those, maybe once every second year, once every third year, you can, you can, once every third year, you can ding that. That makes all the difference in the world because that's another like acquisition cost. You don't have to have, right. That makes all like, look at San Jose. They ding, they get guys late all the time. Anaheim ducks. They're great. Martin Madden. We talked about Martin Madden maybe being like a GM candidate, like Martin Madden and his group are the third best drafting team in the league. They're great. Yeah. And they've I mean, got a slew of really high end guys coming up in Anaheim. And right they now. always come right. I mean, it was just, you know, Murray's, you know, asset management was poor. Yep. And they, they should be a contender based on what they draft and develop. They should have been a contender. And I think Montreal, like I know things are feel pretty grim right now, but like if they can develop some of these kids in the last five drafts into players, at least get 10 of them. I think you're, you're on your way. You're going to yeah. be okay. Especially with the, this potentially getting the first round, first overall pick. If you get Shane, right. That kid's a player. He's a gamer. I like, yeah. Him. And I've, I've seen a lot of people who don't watch junior hockey. And frankly, I don't either. Like I don't have the time. Yeah. I watched him a couple games in the juniors, but a lot of people who don't watch Shane, Wright Talking about how he's going to be a bust. But everybody that I talk to that watches this kid says he's not a franchise level offensive star. 
and don't expect that to be, but he's a guy that does all the little things correctly and will carry a top line. That's still yes. great. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of like now I'm not comparing him to these two players because please don't yell <laughs> at us and um, don't <laughs> yell at me and don't yell at my Twitter for it. It's it's a similar style of play. He's a similar style to Jonathan Taze on how he plays. Will he be Jonathan Taze? I don't know. Like that, that's that's a, that's a, that's a far that's a fetch, tough comparison. Right? That's a tough comparison. But his playing style of how he plays on the ice—that's how it's similar, right? So, but if he can play, you know, can he be a number one center? But he doesn't have the massive offensive numbers where maybe he puts up 65, 70 points a year, but drives that line and allows a Cole Caulfield to be dynamic for a Drouin to be dynamic because he takes care of the middle of the ice and defensive responsibilities and does all the heavy lifting to let them do what they need to do creatively. That's where his extra value is. It's not the extra 10 or 15 points in like on in the score sheet. It's the other things that allow his other line mates to push up, to make up for the points that he's not going to produce. That to me is like that's And in the playoffs, He's going to be a gamer in the playoffs. And that's where I see him where his level of play will not drop. Um, but hey, if you get him first overall, please be patient. He's an 18-year-old kid. Yes, right? this is true. Thrown, and- in, thrown, into, the, thrown into the Montreal Canadiens. Honestly, I, my, my suggestion was send him back. For another I think year. so. One more I w- year. I would. Yeah. I, I mean, especially if they're tanking, right? Like if the idea is to be in. bad. Yeah, it's like how many times I've seen players not produce and end up falling below their expectation, uh, expectation, but even their ceiling level. Yeah. The difference between floor and ceiling is because it's too much too soon. Happens all the time. Like it's, our whole every draft is littered with guys like that. Yeah. So be be just be cautious and careful. Yeah, we had another comment here saying uh, the Craig Reve trade is still legendary for one Montreal guy yeah. out of it. That was Bob Gainey back in the day, I believe. Yeah. What and. uh the fact yes. is they're still gaining from that because they got the pick that became Max Pacioretty and Josh George is back. They traded Max Pacioretty for Nick Suzuki and the pick that became Matthias Norlander, I believe. So there's potentially going to be yes. two roster players, including the current first line center for the Montreal Canadiens still coming out of that trade. Like, yes, yeah, subsequent trades, but like it all, the genesis of it is that trade. I think they got a second round pick back for Josh George's. I don't know if they made bank off of that. It might, was I, that I, the Arturi Lekkinen pick? Maybe. It might, maybe. No, it was, it would have been a high that, second round. That went to San Jose. Uh, Josh George's? No, uh, Josh George's was traded to Buffalo. Buffalo, that's right. So I don't remember if they got Buffalo's pick in that deal. Somebody can look that up if they want. It may have been the year that they drafted Zach Vukali. Not entirely Ooh, sure. Yeah, that no, extra, wait. That extra... it, w- it would have been later because George's was still there for the first couple of years of Bergevin, I believe. But uh, yeah, it, it's interesting to see like the trade trees, like what Steve does okay, on sports that never, it goes, right? it goes nuts. It's yeah. nuts. The, yeah. the, the like ripple effects of trades is, is insane, especially big ones, right? Like there's still players on teams right now who were affected by the Gretzky trade, which is nuts. It's crazy. I mean, that, that, well, that can go on forever. Like you could run this tree in for a generation if you really wanted to. So, that's what makes it really like sort of fascinating from that standpoint. It gets there's a point where it gets kind of silly. It is right once you yeah. get past ten years, you're kind of like. Bleh. But it's, it's just fun, right? Yeah. Oh no, no, it's super fun. Hey, look, from a guy who works on NHL, like video game for EA. Yeah, trust me, man. I'm a kid when it comes to that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> and also, don't yell at me about the player ratings. If if there's players that you don't think are fairly rated, it's because I hate your team and I hate your players. So, <laughs> explain explain Cliff Ronning. Yeah, the exactly. ultimate well, sleeper pick in EA Sports games back in the day. Oh, absolutely. Now I didn't do that because I didn't start until the fall of 2006. So I've been doing the NHL, the AHL, the CHL since then. So I'm running on 15. This will be my 15th season. So yes, and I've actually it's it's really funny. None of the players really complain about it. I've only had one player bitch at me once. 
he called me out on TSN. So that was Sam Gagne. He gave it to me. So we had Zach Stortini come into our big facility in Burnaby uh, out in Vancouver because he's doing some fighting models with us. So he went on with Ryan Rashad and they're talking about it. And Ryan asked him about his rating and Sam just roasted me. And he said, yeah, I talked to the guy who does the ratings. He said the overall doesn't matter. It's about your individual attributes. And it's true. The overall doesn't matter. It has no application in the game. It's just a weighted number based on your playing style. So he got mad at me. So I bumped into Dave Gagne, his dad. He's working for the Canucks. So I'm in the press box. I said, hey, Dave, you tell Sam I'm dropping his toughness down to 60 and Michael Nylander is going to beat the crap out of him every game. So he laughed his ass off, called up Sam, told him that two games later, he gets in a fight with Craig Conroy. And I see him in the locker room. Like you did that on purpose. He's like, Oh yeah. And then all his, all the other his teammates were all laughing at him. Yeah. Cause he goes, how come my scoring isn't better? I'm like, cause you haven't even posted two twenty goals yet. He's <laughs> like, they're yelling at him. You suck. You suck. Yeah. We had a good laugh about it. He's actually a great, like he's a great guy and a great sport about it, but players never really complain to me. Um, some of the tough guys will say, Hey, can you bump my skating up? My kid likes to play me. And I know I'm not the best skater. You know, like Brian McGratton, <laughs> I bump his, I bump his skating up a little bit or when, when was it? It was in. There was a player in Philadelphia Flyers who got hit in the nuts, and it broke his cup. Wasn't it Lind? <laughs> oh, was it, Lind- was it Patrick that? Thorison? Yes, Patrick Thorison. Because he actually so, lost a, a testicle. TMI, yeah, I so, know, but yeah, yeah. So he got hit, and then um, my co-host at the time, Russ Cohen, is based out of Philly, and I texted Russ, and he said, "When you see." Patrick downstairs, tell him I'm bumping his toughness up seven, seven points. Cause anybody can get hit in the junk and come back and then lose that and still lose it and still come back. He's okay. In my books. And he told him that and he goes, that's awesome. He was pumped. He was <laughs> pumped. So I was like, yep, just on principle, I got to bump up your toughness. Right. Cause that's oh, crazy. That's fantastic. We had some comments on like the trade tree stuff. Uh, somebody said that they thought that uh, Jan Misak was a part of that trade tree with Craig. Ooh, that could have been it. And someone said that they traded the pick that they got for Josh George's for Andrew Shaw. Then they traded Andrew Shaw back to the Chicago Blackhawks for a 2020 second round pick, which became Jan Misak. So Jan Misak, I believe, is the last potential. Oh, no, there's also a third round pick from Chicago, but I don't know what they did with that. It might have been their Dmitry Kostenko pick from last year, which right. I don't know much about him, but uh, most likely Jan Misak is the last player from the Georges side. The Pacioretty side, obviously, Suzuki is going to be That's a Canadian for a long time. And they, they need him for him to play. They need Misak to play. He's got he's to be a middle six forward for them moving yeah. forward. So that's... Uh, uh, look, look they, and they invested a lot of picks. Like, they got uh three in the top two three in the top two uh first and a second in 19 i'm looking at the list there's like four in 2018 like three in 2017 like they got a hit on those they have to spend whatever money is necessary to develop those players like i don't care if you spend like two million dollars you got to go do it yeah like they've got to hire skills coaches as well guys that work yeah. with those kids daily and not just in the american hockey league they've got to get like meetings with their college guys meetings with their like somebody who goes into their junior leagues guy go over to europe and work with them just flying around all the time working with players seeing what they need to work on enhancing their skills working a little bit on their weaknesses all that and stuff then, and using technology for that so I, i've seen yeah. some really interesting new technology for vr that helps people players with their development but also being able to build systems in place for your player development so using video capabilities effectively but also understanding so that you integrate your other departments in terms of biometrics and understanding okay so this is why you're having issues with your skating because you know your attack posture is off and then then you are like you're you're going to the outside edges too often here. And like, and this, this kind of stuff I end up talking with player development people about is making sure that you can break that down effectively and then having the video components to show them, okay, this is what we need to do. Now here are the drills for us to correct that. And we're going to do it all these different types of drills until it becomes muscle memory. 
And then the problem is like, it's not entirely solved, but what you have to do is try to build a player up to the best capability of what they are. Because you can't say, oh, I'm going to take this kid and like watch Connor McDavid and be that. Well, that's ridiculous. That doesn't happen. Like your body yeah. type and your muscle construction, all of that, like your, 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 you know, skeletal construction is all different. So, and how you skate and how you move is all different from other people. So you have to build it for that player. Right. So that's where, like, I like having these conversations and guests on our show about player development. And then how do you tactically rebuild, build players? Like, what do you, what do you look for? How do you redo it? How do you build them up? And then get them to the point where they can be an asset in an NHL level from what the skill set they have and the body they have. Not looking at, oh, I want to emulate this player. Well, it may not even be possible to do that. So you have to have staff who recognize that. So you integrate your departments. This is where I think interdisciplinary research and interdisciplinary is necessary. So you don't have silos. And that's the hallmark of like fantastic and successful Fortune 500 companies. Why not do that with the Montreal Canadiens? They're a Fortune 500 company. And, you know, the Molson family has the money to spend it. So outspend people and like that. Toronto's starting to do that and trying to do that. So why can't Montreal run them down? And they could. I think within a year, two years, they could run them down and surpass them if they dedicate themselves to that. There, That's a great spot to end it. I mean... Get all the, the Leafs fans upset about that and get everybody talking because uh, that's... Yeah, I'm going to get yelled at by the Leafs fans on my Twitter. Don't yeah, I'm definitely gonna... Twitter because I won't... <laughs> I'm going to clip that <laughs> for the show. <laughs> Send it out to social media tomorrow morning. It'd be great. I'm going to get bombarded. Oh, like, sorry. Sure, you know? Like... <laughs> Worth it, though. Worth it. All right. Thanks so much, Shane, for coming, and thanks for everybody for tuning in. Uh, before we clock out here, though, uh, Shane, tell everybody where they can find your stuff. Well, uh, you can look on uh, Twitter, so at Shane Malloy, and then at HP Radio, so it's Hockey Prospect Radio. We will be on air tomorrow um, at 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and again at 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. It is Channel 91, and we're going to get it the show onto a podcast soon, so you can get all the replays and the archives as well. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks to everybody for watching, and uh, we'll see you on, I think it's Monday is the next game. So uh, we'll see you then.